coming. But uh, would you open your Bibles to the book of uh, Revelation chapter 3? We are on a journey through the book of Revelation. We are taking the scenic route. In verse 1, it's not a hard book to find. Just go to the back if you've made it to uh, the concordance you've gone too far. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for I have not found your works perfect before God. Verse three, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you'll not watch, I'm going to come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. God, would you give us uh, insight into uh, our lives today uh, from your word that this isn't just some academic exercise, a Bible class. This is us getting a chance to hear from you. You said you would write your will on our hearts, our minds, and we just ask for you to do that today. In your name we pray, amen. This uh, church, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but it kind of sucks. Um, chapter two, there's at least, hey, you did this awesome, but oh, you really work on this, or church at Smyrna, you guys are kicking butt, taking names, you're doing great. This church, uh, he ain't got nothing good to say. <laughs> I mean, as the system as a whole, there's a few of you, but you know, you need to get your act together. And, and honestly, the, the beauty of going through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is that normally I would have skipped something like that because that's no fun. We want to get to the, the good ones, the, the stuff we put on our mirrors and our, you know. But every word of God's word is inspired, so there is good in this for us as well. And I'm glad I didn't skip it because as it turns out, it's pretty awesome. Now, Sardis... If you've been around a while, you know uh, the last few weeks that when we were hitting each one of these letters that I personally believe that these letters were written to an actual local church that actually received the letter. There were seven of them. They were on a postal route that went all through what is modern day Turkey now. So there was a church there that it mattered that it was for them. I also believe that it spoke of, of a future of the seven periods of what would turn out to be church history. It was prophetic then, it's history to us, but it speaks of those, and there were messages for that period of church history that I think apply to us even today. And I know this, even if you're not part of one of those, if you're not, you know, live in Sardis, every one of these letters has the, he who has an ear, let him hear. And so if you've got an ear this morning, you're kind of uniquely qualified to hear what he's saying, each one of these messages was a message to them individually to these churches, but it is something that applies to all churches through all times and to all people. There's a message in it for all of us, and, and that's true of Sardis as well. How many of you have been to Sardis? All of us? None, right? Some of, uh, the, the, actually, you can go there today. It's in modern-day Turkey. There are all the Bible tours. You're, you, know, you can spend a bunch of money. I, I personally feel like I'm just going to wait until Jesus comes back and we get an all-expense-paid trip. But Sardis didn't start in Revelation 3. That wasn't the city didn't just form. It actually had formed hundreds of years before that. I don't know if you guys remember, you guys remember King Midas in history? You may not know much about Midas. The Midas touch, any of that sound familiar to you? King Midas was a guy that was in uh, Sardis, but he was pretend, he wasn't real, okay? He was mythological. But there was a king named King Croesus that apparently that his story was he would go to King Midas, and his city was located like up across the top here. Sardis was on top of that cliff. And King Croesus would go to King Midas, and that's where apparently all of the wealth had come from for him. In fact, in history, it teaches us that King Croesus was the first one 
to mint coins. He was loaded, rich. And so the Midas touch, you've heard of that, you know, you touch it, everything you touch turns to gold. That's where all of that came from. Now, if you can see on this up here, this is a city that was on three sides was protected from anybody getting into them. It was protected on the front, you can't see it from here, but across the front there was a wall of defense, and that's where they put all of their defense, all of their men, their weapons, so that they could protect themselves from the outside world. And in doing so, had become a little arrogant. Because they're thinking, ah, oh, you can't defeat us, we're, we're protected everywhere. We got these walls here, we got all these men, we got all this money. And the beautiful thing, the bad thing, when you get that kind of money and that sort of a culture was that you're now a target. And he was absolutely, King Croesus was a target, Sardis was a target, but they were arrogant and thought there's no way we can be defeated. Look at this defense that we have. That was until King Cyrus. You guys might remember uh, King Cyrus uh, from, oh, that's the wrong one. That's the wrong one, I apologize. <laughs> King Cyrus, <laughs> you might remember, if, if you don't, you would remember Daniel and the lion's den. Remember he was thrown into a lion's den and there was a king named King Cyrus that would ultimately re return Israel to their homeland. That's that king. And one of the cities that he conquered was Sardis. And what he did when he conquered Sardis was he had put out a reward. He wanted this city so bad that he put out a reward to his men. If anybody could figure out a way into this city that there would be uh, financial wealth and riches. And so the guys, his guys are spying out. And what they figured out was there were two of the guys sitting down at the bottom of the hill here, watching up to the top, and they see a couple of soldiers along the wall. One of the guys drops his helmet. This is Herodotus, who is the father of history, writes about this. And they noticed that later on at the bottom of the hill that the helmet was gone, which meant to them, oh, there must be a path up there somehow because those guys made it down, got the helmet, and made it back out, and nobody saw them coming. And Cyrus conquered Sardis. Now, you would think that they would have figured this out now when Cyrus is in town and he's in charge, but if... Uh, <laughs> What is it that we've learned from history? It says if man learns anything from history, it's that man doesn't learn from history. Because just a few hundred years later, a couple hundred years later, it would happen again. Alexander the Great, Greece, would come in, conquer Sardis again using the exact same technique. And once again, this great and mighty and arrogant city fell. And you look at that and think, well, that's great, Darren. Thank you for the history lesson. We are in a school, you're welcome. But it means something more in that when you look at the lesson, the, the message that Jesus gave to that church, it was watch out, be watchful, be awake. It was a message to this church, a message to our church, to you and I, don't become arrogant, be watchful. Or else the enemy comes in like a flood. But not only that, but the name of the city, you remember, it's a, it means something when you look at the city and the, and the message of Jesus. And, and I looked a lot, in the, I've actually taught through Revelation before, so it's not the first time that, that I've been to this rodeo, but it's like there are so many, there you could literally get pages and pages and pages and pages of opinions on Sardis and the name and the meaning and what it is. But when you look to the actual name, it's the name of of a gem, of a precious stone, the Sardis stone. It first appears in Exodus when you see it in the, uh, the breastplate of the high priest, there was a Sardis stone there. It appears again in Revelation 21, it speaks of a, the Sardis stone. But the challenge in all of the Hebrew language is that sometimes they use the same name for a different gem and a different thing. And, and what you end up with was a stone that at one point was very valuable, very rare, very desirable, that is now completely indistinguishable. It's common now. And what was his message to the church at Sardis? You have a name, but you're dead. You're worthless. Even in the name itself, it meant what he was saying to this church. Hey, you got a name, but you're worthless. 
If you were here a couple weeks ago and you were offended by what I said about the Catholic Church, I got good news. We're hitting the Reformation today. So you, I'm an equal opportunity offender. So if you, if you want to join the amen chorus of it, this letter not only represents, as we've talked about, a, a uh, local church, a prophetic, but the epic in church history. And this letter, I believe, and you'll see, I, I, you can go home, study for yourself, research. You may not agree with me. That's fine. But when you look at these seven letters, in the order that they're in, in the order the cities were, the order, if there was in any other order, it wouldn't fit. I believe it's just part of the beauty of what God did in the scriptures. He made this thing amazing and huge. And this, speaking of a time when the Catholic Church, remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago, in the dark ages had come, it was a bad time to be alive. The Pope had taken over everything and you were, uh, at that point, Europe, they owned, by some estimates, a third of the land in Europe. It was, the papacy was in charge and nobody could uh, have a Bible, they couldn't read the word themselves, and it had got to the point where you were, could buy indulgences. Hey, if you're going to sin this weekend, going on a bender, awesome. Just write a check, drop some gold in the bucket, and pay ahead on it. You're sinning on credit. It's, the idea of it, and they would actually go out into the countryside and sell these indulgences for their fundraisers. Doing a building project, we need to get some guys out there, sales guys, into the countryside. And in the 1500s, 1400s, there was a guy named John Wycliffe who, who was, a, the seeds of the Reformation were being sown long before Martin Luther, but Wycliffe was saying, this is ridiculous. We're buying our sins ahead of time, they have all this control over us, and it was Wycliffe who made the very first translation of the Bible, which, remember the Latin Vulgate, it's the Latin version of the Bible. I don't know how many of you guys are reading your Latin this week, but even then they weren't. So they translated it into English. This offended the church so badly that even 40 years after his death, Pope Marvin digs up this guy's bones, burns them, incinerates them, and throws them into the river as an act of insult to his body because they wanted the control that badly Martin Luther comes along in the 1500s and says, this, is, this can't be right. That, that we have to buy our salvation, that this much power, this government, this theocracy, and I, I don't have time to go into the, the complete history of it, but he, in a moment of prayer, he was a, he was a monk, he was a, in the Catholic Church, would actually go in and literally like beat himself with a whip until he bled trying to earn his forgiveness as the custom was, and he, at that point, the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending, chapter two, when he, he saw for the very first time that the just shall live by faith. And it changed everything from that moment on for him. And from that, a reformation was born. He went and took a letter in the 95 Thesis, you might remember, he nails it onto the door of the Catholic churches, and, and a movement unfolds of protest against the papacy against what had become the Roman Catholic Church. If you're a Protestant this morning, you may have never noticed that it is protest. Protest, it was protesting against what was happening. This is all very germane to Sardis. It's very germane to us. Because in this moment, when they say, they can't be this way, all the control that this church, this centralized, the, the wealth and the power is not what I see in the early church in the book of Acts and what Jesus was, uh, was selling to us, saying you, the simplicity of that wasn't it. And so when you've got Martin Luther saying, hey, the just shall live by faith, what it did was threaten the power of the Catholic church, which incidentally, sidebar, it was from that, there was a, an order of people, a group of people called the Jesuits, you might have heard of them. And it was the Jesuits whose job it was to inst, uh, put order in the church, to protect against this ridiculous doctrine of Martin Luther. And in, in this period of time, the Roman Catholic Church, and by the way, 20 years ago, Pope John Paul stood in a airplane hangar in Russia, and for the very first time in history, the Catholic Church acknowledged and apologized for that period of time. More Christians were killed in that period of time than all of the Roman emperors combined. The Inquisition, the Crusades would come out of 
Because the church needed that kind of power. When you have built the tower, when you have built the centralized system, you become arrogant and you need to protect it. And from that, that uh, I, I bring it up just to say that it was from that that Martin Luther spoke up and said it can't be that. And an amazing movement was born, but I look at it though, in the context of this and what he's saying about this church, and if it speaks of this period of church history. And he would say to them that you have a name. And if you have been around church at all for the past few years, you know that the church is born out of the Reformation. Have a name. A lot of the mainline denominational churches, and I want you to hear me say this clearly, there are some amazing things happening in amazing churches. In the, so I'm speaking about a system, not a person. But if you've been to Europe, Austria, Germany, and you've sat in these amazing cathedrals that are just ridiculous and beautiful and empty, those were churches born from the Reformation. Churches that started out awesome, but began to grow, in my opinion, arrogant. Knowledge does what? Puffs up. It builds pride, and when you are building that kind of a system, that even in Martin Luther, before Martin Luther passed away, it already started to change. He spent an enormous amount of time now trying to figure out, do we believe this or do we believe that? They instituted a, a power block of, of, uh, of bishops and priests. The just shall live by faith, but we gotta organize this thing. Be pragmatic, Darren, you gotta organize it. And then the systems get in place, and all of a sudden there's something to protect, and now there's power and politics and petrification. Again, I believe that there are amazing things. I've got amazing brothers and sisters that are a part of mainline denominational churches, and I'm not here to throw rock at any one of those. I'm not a Holy Ghost Junior. It's above my pay grade. What I know is this, is that the Holy Spirit, what started in the book of Acts, looked nothing like a cathedral in Austria. That's awesome, it's a good museum. It's kind of nice, beautiful. That's not what started in Acts. That's not what Jesus offered. And I, I think of that in terms of, of us here locally in, in our body of believers. We have this opportunity to, to not follow what I think is a pretty dangerous potential for a life cycle of a church. Because it starts out about the, the people. When you very first, when a church is born, it's, it's all about the people. We want to do good things for the people. That's how Conduit started. We met as a Bible study in a little hole in the wall downtown, and we just wanted to we want to help some people. We want to do some good for the people around us. But as the, the life cycle grows, it, it, it can become about the pulpit. It's about, hey, that guy's a good preacher. It, which uh, for conduit we, we're pretty okay here like we think we're, we're going to be you know what I mean like I, we're it, 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 we really can't get past that one when you think about it but it's it becomes about that in the pulpit and we got to figure out how to you know you do the right thing and now it's all about the Sunday gathering and how can this guy preach a good sermon think about it if you visited here you walk away thinking oh he, he did good or he did bad that's one of the very, when you ask somebody what you think about a church like this church, because one of the very first things that comes out of somebody's mouth is going to be, he was either good or he was a bad preacher. It, it isn't always the whole story of it, but that's what we're trained to think. And so it becomes about the pulpit, and then the cycle continues because, oh, this guy's knocking it out of the park. We got to get a piece of property. We got to build, we got to have, we got to own something because then we can reach more people. And so it becomes about this property. And of course, in America, the beauty, the ugliness, whatever, is that we can go borrow the money if we need to as a church. One of the greatest waves of bankruptcy going on in America right now, unknown, is churches. Churches that built 20, 30, 40 million dollar auditoriums, and when the giving went down because of the economy, well, they started laying people off, and if you drive through Atlanta, you'll see there are three or four churches of 4,000, 5,000 seat auditoriums, vacant, boarded up, empty. Ocala, Florida, Orlando, Dallas, Texas. They're all over the place, but because we had to get the property 
But then what ends up happening, because we got this property and you've got this albatross around your neck, you end up uh, becoming about the power. And we talk about the selling of indulgences and how that happened back then in the day. And, and you know, interestingly enough, we actually see that today. There is a selling of indulgences. And when you need the money to make the payment, to do the loan, to pay the thing, to pay the interest, you end up doing some pretty dumb stuff and saying dumb stuff. This is a guy that on TV, you can find, if you're up at 2 a.m., and I know all of us are, just flip on to BET, flip, flip on to one of these off, off channels, and you'll find guys like this saying, hey, you send me $1,000. This is what he's saying. $1,000 right now, then you're going to reap over the next three months a gigantic harvest of prosperity in your life. Call this number now. Get the miracle spring water. Get the glow-in-the-dark statue of Jesus with bozable arms and oil-dispensing hands. You can put it right there on your TV while you're watching Mork and Mindy and reruns and, and see Jesus in it. It's this craziness, but you can laugh at that on TV. But let me tell you, it actually is happening in churches as well. And if you've been around a while, you know this. This is from a church in X City. They've got the giant deal. The guy's got the plane. He's got to make the payments. And he offers a money-back guarantee on your tithe with a straight face. If you'll tithe, you're going to be so blessed. And, and, and he would go on to say, you could Google it and find it. I'm not going to say his name. Just I'll let Jesus take care of this. If you're sitting in this seat and you're not tithing this morning, you're wasting space that could be someone else's. You should leave. And if, if you're new to church or tithing, just means you're giving 10% of your income. You should just leave. He said this out loud. It's on video. And you know what's sad? Because that church is packed every week. And it's packed because we have bought into a name. Jesus said, you have a name, but you're dead. We bought into a name of a denomination. And all of a sudden, we're going to fight over that. It's that denomination. That's my thing, my deal. It's my preacher my guy, and what we end up with is a church that looks absolutely nothing like what Jesus gave us. What Jesus gave us was a gift, and that's not a gift, that's an albatross. That is a ball and chain that you will drag around for the rest of your life until you're so tired you cut it free and walk away and you blame Jesus, but it wasn't his idea, it's not his fault. And as conduit church, we don't want to be about the, the people. We want to be about the people. We don't want to be about the pulpit or the property or the power. And what we really don't want to be about is the, the politics of it. Because once you've got the power, I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but when there is no objective goal in something, politics emerge almost immediately. When there is no, hey, this is our goal, there's an objective that we know we're supposed to do, the politics emerge because then I got to justify why I'm even here to begin with. And the politics means that if you can get close to me, then I can justify my deal. And the politics make it so ugly. And if you've been around church, if you've been around a corporate atmosphere, you know this. But the, the politics in a church, and I mean, if you've been around again a while, you've, you've experienced the politics of this. You might want to turn your phones off. I might. The politics are the beginning of the decay of a church, of a church body, of a church denomination, because from the politics has nothing to do with Jesus anymore and it has everything to do with me retaining my power. And from that happens the petrification. Go ahead and just finish that out. Petrification. <laughs> I ran out of room, I wasn't gonna. Those cathedrals in Europe, you couldn't tell the difference between some of uh, those in a museum or a mausoleum because they're beautiful on the outside and they're dead on the inside. And I think as a church, as an American, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we have to say no to this. We've survived three years. Awesome. Congratulations. This is the time where it becomes our choice to be Sardis, to build a great name, to build a big platform, to be huge and dominate, or to be about Jesus. 
and to be about what he offered, which was this free gift of salvation. The just shall live by faith. Martin Luther was right. And he went back and said, you're wrong about this and that, but he didn't, I think, go far enough because he allowed in place the powers the infrastructure, the political thing, so that in Germany, Nazi Germany in 1933, Adolf Hitler institutes this unconstitutional ruling saying that in the Church of uh, Europe here, the, the confessing church hadn't been born yet, which is what Bonhoeffer would do, but all the, the Lutherans, the Methodists, these churches that were born out of the Reformation a few hundred years before, Hitler said, we're going to put new leaders and we're going to do elections for all of these leaders, keeping in mind that Hitler won in an election overwhelmingly voted into power in, in uh, Germany. But he did that then in the church. Bonhoeffer spoke up and said, no, 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 we can't possibly let this happen. We can't let these, the Nazi sympathizers and supporters be voted in as the powers in this church. Overwhelmingly, those churches, that church uh, government was populated with Nazi supporters, of Hitler supporters, so that, and this is what Hitler knew, that a church that is full of the Holy Spirit, that is on fire, that is not screwing around, would never do what happened in many churches around Nazi Germany. On Sundays, when the cattle cars would come by, some of the churches knew that it would be at 10 a.m. that the, ch the, the train would come and it would be packed with Jews, literally beyond counting and their suffering. And, their, and a Jew would drive, they would go by this on their way to what they thought would be their death and they would be right. They'd see the church would scream out for help because it's a church they should be helping. And what did the churches do? They sang louder so they didn't have to hear. You have a name, but you're dead. He didn't say, you're, 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 we're gonna bring you back to life. He, this is an indictment, you're dead. What is the answer to that? What is the answer to us? And I'm telling you, I believe it's really extremely extraordinarily simple. He said to them that you have a name, but you're dead. Us as a church, as conduit, what we cannot be about is trying to A, build our name, but we also cannot be about attaching ourselves to another name. And what I mean by that is, if you've been in church, you know, hey, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Both of those are great guys. They started great movements, but all of a sudden, now I'm not a Jesus guy. I'm, I'm planting a flag in the ground with a man and not with Jesus. We can't make it about our denomination. We also can't make it about our pet theology. Because if you allow the pet theology to come inside, it will shape us and then it will warp us. That is no way to grow old. I can't make it about a Calvin or an Arminian or a a Darian. You like that? Write that down. It just came to me. We can't make it about that name. We have to be not a Baptist church, not an Episcopalian church, not a Calvinist, an Arminian. Man, where is the box for Jesus church? And let me mark that one because that's what I want to be. It has to be about the name, not their name. When the Bible speaks of taking the name of the Lord in vain, it doesn't mean you stubbed your toe and said something you wish you hadn't of in front of the kids. What it meant was taking God's name and attaching it to my agenda. Saying this is a God thing and it's my deal, so I'm gonna make it God and blame it on him. I'm taking his name like a corporate sponsor. When you've, if you've been to NASCAR, you see they have signs all over the hoods. They're taking their name for profit, for money, for support. When I, when I mix commerce and the gospel, I am taking God's name in vain because I'm selling Jesus now and he's free. It can't be about the name. The other thing he said to this church was to watch. Wake up, that's when that word watch, it's actually wake up. Like the kids love it in my house because uh, I, I get to be the guy to wake up a lot of times in the morning. And so depending on which day it is, mostly Friday, uh, if they're not getting out of bed, I'll just throw in Rebecca Black Friday on the iPad and walk around and you know, parade and sing and getting them awake. And they'll get out of bed fast just to make that stop. <laughs> but what he's saying is awake, be watchful, be awake, don't sleep. If, if you've got a pen, I'm just gonna uh, 
say them and you write them down, go to them later. In the scriptures, incidentally, there are four places where I see he says to actually to watch and to watch for something specifically. In Matthew 24, he says to watch for his coming, to be watchful for his appearance back, to be awake and to be alert. In Matthew 26, he tells us to watch out for temptation, to look out for sin. In Acts chapter 20, he tells us to watch for false teachers, wolves. There'll be wolves that'll come in amongst you. And so he says to be watchful for those false teachers. And then number four, First Peter, I'm thinking it's five, but give me a little latitude on this one. He says to watch out for your enemy, Satan, who roars around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Interestingly enough, when you think of many of these mainline, when I'm talking about the cathedrals in Washington, these beautiful churches, what are the four things that they stay away from? We don't want to talk about the second coming. We're all millennial. We don't even believe it's going to be a literal thing. It's all metaphor. Temptation, there's no temptation because we're all, we want to be tolerant, and so we're going to ordain people who maybe shouldn't be because we're, this is none of it is sin. We don't even want to talk about sin. It isn't sin anymore. It would, in false teachers, it is false teaching. We're not watching out for them. We are them. And Satan, no, that's spooky. There's no hell. We're going to rewrite it all so that it fits. It's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating when you think about it. The very things he said to watch out for are what a lot of the denominations are not even paying any attention to. But I would say to us that we have got to watch, to watch out for those four things. But what did Jesus in the garden say? Listen, this is fascinating to me. He said to them, could you not watch with me for one hour? To the disciples, could you? He says, watch for me, but he's saying watch with me. Could you not? Not even could you pray. And think about it, if you're Jesus, what he's saying is, watch with me, be awake, be alert about the needs, the, what's happening. And when you're watching with somebody, there's a community that is formed there because we're watching together. Not watching each other to see which one screws up with a hammer so we can do a game of Jesus at whack-a-mole and oh, you screwed up and got to be. But watch with each other because you and I are not each other's enemy. Satan is the enemy. Watch for your enemy, not each other. So when we are watching with each other, I, I'm giving up on the penmanship. I left the stylus at home, so that's a with. We're just doing what Jesus asked us to do with him, setting an example. Because he would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, what did he say in Revelation 3? I'm going to come on you like a thief. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, hey, but if you're a children of the light, if you are a believer, I'm not going to come upon you like a thief in the night. And the reason is, is because you're already awake. You know what's coming. Watching with him. And I don't know uh, where Robert is. Would you come join me for just a moment? Because here's what I wanted to suggest to you about the future of what is this thing we call conduit. Did you bring your own mic? Uh, is not making it about a cathedral. Not trying to attach it to some giant building that I now got to make the payment on. Did you know that in the fourth century, Constantine outlawed house churches? For the first 300 years of Jesus, church cathedrals and buildings were a completely foreign concept. But when you start the big, the big building program, you need people in the butts in the seats to make the payments. And he had the power to outlaw it, and he did. Now, keeping in mind, I'm not saying this is a both or an either or. I'm saying it's a both and. Acts 2.46 said they met in the temple and in their homes. In our church environment, what we tend to make it about, and this is where we are at Condo, we have this potential to make it about the pulpit and about Sunday. And I'm telling you, if we do that, we're going nowhere but downhill. It'll become about the property. It's going to become about the power. It's going to become about the politics. And then we're going to be petrified. I've invited Robert because a couple of reasons. One, the stories that they have shared about what's happening in their home on Wednesday nights, to me, was inspiring. Secondly, it's not a conduit group. They, they were meeting like this before they came here. I don't own it. I don't have a dog in the hunt. And I'm okay with that. Because Jesus is moving in this neighborhood, in their home, and I asked Robert to just share 
five minutes, you really got to keep it to five because we have cake. <laughs> I shouldn't have announced cake because now they're all chicken ready to check out. We're about to dial in, just, you know, seat backs up, tray tables are getting ready to make a landing. But Robert, would you tell us, like, what's happening in your home on Wednesdays and, and a little bit about what God is doing? Yeah, I will, for sure. Hi, everyone. My name's Rob. Um, my wife's back there. Uh, Natalie, we, I'm from South Africa. I chased her down to your country to marry her. Nice work. That's what all men have to do, right? Taking your women. But uh, <laughs> we... <laughs> I've been here about 10 years, and uh, so the accent's waning, but uh, I'll, I'll survive. We have a couple kids that keep showing up. We just had an intervention, so I think we know how to stop it now. But um, it's just an honor to be a part of this. And what I wanted to tell you a little bit about is our journey. I, I got to work in a church and, and be a part of churches across the world. But when I came to Nashville six years ago, Natalie and I showed up here and it was probably the first time in my life I was not paid to be a Christian, and I kind of just took a step back, and I thought, oh, this is good. Let's, let's, let's kind of see what happens. Let's see what bubbles up within us, and we were a part of a church just, um, Journey, you guys are familiar with Journey, and, and uh, hit it off with Jamie, and it was such a great relationship, and, and Jamie was like, you got to lead a small group, and I was like, ah, I just need to breathe. Like, we, we just, we arrived, and I just want to see, you know, what, what is going to bubble up in our lives. Uh, um, having come out of structure, and not bad necessarily, bad structure, um, but having coming out of that environment, I just, we came to Nashville just to say, God, we want to fall in love with you again. Uh, we want to kind of go on that dating side of our relationship once again. And long story short, what I realized was I was very needy, and it's kind of awkward to be needy. Uh, but I woke up one day and realized I really need people. And, you know, wow, you know, the independent American spirit, you know. You know, I just realized it's not really about that. I realized how dependent I was really on people. Um, and that kind of scared me. But then I, I started hanging out with some friends of ours that are most of the musicians, but one of my friends would sit down and he, 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 you know, he looked me in the eyes and he goes, I'm lonely. And I go, lonely? You know, everyone knows about you. You're on the stage playing with 20,000 people every night and you're lonely. And he's like, I'm lonely. We come back to Nashville, we get off the road and it's like, like nobody knows me. I'm like... I'm lonely too, like, I'm needy, you know, it's like this kind of awkward, like, you know, and then um, Natalie's brother too, and it, it's kind of this real awkward feeling of like, can we admit this? And what happened is our gathering was birthed probably about three and a half years ago out of just desperate need for, for one another, but more than that, because we all know how to hang out together, right? But, yeah. And we're pretty good at hanging out with each other, we're pretty good at that side of community, but we realized we needed each other for each other, but we needed to spur one another on for the Lord. And I think we were all missing that. We all had churches we were going to, we were part of lives and family and whatever else, but we looked each other in the eyes and there was something else that we needed. And it wasn't signing up for a small group at the time that made sense for us, especially the season that we were in. So Natalie and I said, let's, let's, try, to, let's try to give our lives away to other people. For the first time I was in that position and we did that. And it's kind of awkward because we had some people who would say like, we want to give you our lives. And man, we scared some people away. You know, it's kind of like, it's definitely an awkward thing, you know? They're like, who is this crazy South African and what does he want with us, you know? And, but there were enough people that resonated with that. And so we began a three and a half year journey towards an, an expression of community that I had never tasted or, or, or experienced before. And it's been, it came at a sacrifice. It came at a cost. And we decided, you know what, we're going to get together and we're going to be together. And it, and it became everyone brings something. And I like to control things, put it in boxes, create the structure, you know, and, and we, you know where that goes. And God just said, hands off. And we created this environment and the rules were simple. When we get together officially, you walk into this environment and everyone brings something. If you don't have something to bring, then just come and let it just be filled up. But everyone brings something. And it's not like, hey, would you prepare five songs or would you do this or would you do that? So when people walk in the door, I don't want someone leading me in worship if, if they don't want to be doing it. I don't want someone speaking if they don't want to speak. And so we created the safe environment where we said, everyone bring what you have. And run it by Jesus. And if you really, really think you need to say it and you're not just going to take up space or if you really think you need to come up with that idea, do it. And it's really freaky for somebody who has control issues like me and and you know there's some days where we got together and so I'm the gatherer that's my gifting is this idea of gathering and so we'll meet at our house in Franklin and next week we'll be in Brentwood and the week after we'll be in East Nashville 
we probably have about 20 to 30 people, probably about 17 to 20 kids. People drive from Spring Hill to East Nashville at peak traffic because they want to be together. I sit at, you know, in the traffic going through the 40 on the way to East Nashville at 5.15 you know, on a Wednesday night. And I'm like, I want to be with these people. And we get together and we share a meal and then we put our kids down. We have 17, 18 kids get put down. There's kids in the bathroom. There's kids in the bath. There's three fertile. kids stacked up. We just decided this is the culture that we're going to create. Now, our kids are all under probably seven or eight years old. You're talking like 17 kids. Under the, you know, and by eight o'clock, they're all sleeping somehow, some way. Because three years ago, we said, we want to be a family. But by the time it's bedtime, it's bedtime. And then the rest of us kind of be together with Jesus in that environment. And it's been an incredible sacrifice for us to do that. But it's what's worked. And now it's normal. And during that time, it's really, it takes all shapes and, you know, sizes. And we've just really enjoyed, um, I just want to share, actually, when Darren mentioned me mentioning this, we had somebody come last week, and I just said to them, I sh shot them a text message this morning. It's the first time they ever came to our gathering. And I just said, hey, what did you think? Like, you know, good or bad? And, and this is kind of what he texted me back. He said, I'd say it's more than a small group. It's a family gathering, an environment where needs and prayer are top priority. It's less centered around one person, but each individual member makes up the body as one unit, being able to walk out their gifting. I'd never met them. Um, you know, they showed up last week. I'm not sure who brought them, but that's what they're taking away. We're creating this environment where it's like everyone show up. And, you know, I'm the gatherer, but if I'm not going to be a group next week, I'm not going to, I don't really tell everyone it's on. If it's not going to be at my house, I just, I'm quiet and somebody else figures it out. And it just happens. People just want to be together. Um, and I just want to show you one or two more things. I can see that cake is just, uh, Darren's starting to twitch here, so. Um, Blood sugar's going low. But uh, I just reached out to my group this morning, too, and I sent out a text message. I said, hey, what are we? You know, and, and this is what some of the people from my gathering said. Philip said, we're a gathering of believers. We're just breaking bread, just sharing life, learning how to sincerely serve each other. Uh, Dan said, I think it's cool that we're a bunch of people from a whole lot of different churches. Uh, Debbie said, I love that we're involved with each other outside of this group, whether it's time together, text messages, or whatever else. We're living life outside of our gatherings. Uh, Kelly said, you know, I love that we send out mass prayer requests. We keep each other in prayer continually. We're vulnerable. We, we make it safe to be real. Mike said, we put our kids down. We drive through peak traffic because community requires sacrifice. And, um, you know, I just want to end with my father-in-law uh, said this one thing that just, just rocked me when we kind of started this group. He, he said, it's better for life to cry out for structure than, huh. for, life to, than for, for structure to cry out for life. Wow, somebody better write that down. And I, it's, it's, I wish I'd have it's said that. TM. It's TM. Uh, don't steal it. No. But it's, um, <laughs> you know, and that's what we've done is we, we showed up and said, we want to be life. And, and we have cried out for structure. And that's a natural part yes. of our community. But we, we haven't created a structure, and now we're sitting there, man, we need to fill this building, or we need to fill our home group. We've, we've just allowed it to be the opposite. And that's a little bit about us. We're a mess. The best times of our groups is we've gone through miscarriages, poverty, you name it, divorce, all, all those things. And the coolest thing about our group is we've gone through all of that, and we're still in community with, with those people. And I think that's, that's the coolest part about it. Thank you, man. I mean, isn't that what we want? Does that sound compelling to you? Like, way more compelling than... And again, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. Like, we can sit here. That There's the five-fold ministry gift. It was a teacher, a prophet. This is, this is okay. This is not a bad thing. It's just that this is one-fifth of what he promised us. And it's, it's how they started out in Acts the very first church was born. We just, they just devoted themselves to fellowship, to prayer, to teaching, breaking bread. They met in the temple, verse 46, and in each other's homes. And we talk so much about, oh, we gotta change the culture, the war on the culture. Wouldn't this change the culture? Because what is our culture now? We're busy. I've had conversations this week. And they, they oh man, I'm just, I'm desperate for that. I've, I'm lonely, I'm, but I don't, you know, but, but I'm busy and I can't. And so what I would say to you is, and actually if you guys wanna come as the worship 
musicians as, as we're getting ready to land here, I would say to you this, that if you're waiting for me to do that, you're making it about the person. We've moved from pulpit now to power in my place, and that's, you don't want me there because I'm going to let you down. How desperate are you? What are you willing to risk for that? Rejection? Oh, I invited them to come, but they wouldn't even call me back. And so I don't try anymore. Some of you that, are, that feel that loneliness, I want you to know I believe that's a gift God is giving you because you are lonely and you know it. Everybody's lonely, but they maybe don't even know it. They need to wake up. You've already been awoken. That loneliness has woken you, and so reaching out, don't quit. Don't just because somebody didn't call you back, you didn't just dig in and keep going. Because this only works if we're all in. If there are people that, and maybe God's speaking to somebody this morning saying, I want this in my home. I want to have this atmosphere. I want to invite people into my home and, and facilitate. And you might think, oh, I'm not a Bible teacher. I'm not a, I don't care. And apparently neither did God. There are teachers and prophets, but it doesn't mean they have to be there every week. Imagine what it would feel like to walk into your home and have some friends and family and and the plan is, hey, we're going to eat together tonight. And then we're going to, hey, how can I be praying for you? And then you pray for each other. And, and then you don't have to do a teaching. Just read a chapter of the Bible. And, hey, what's the Lord speaking to you in that? Prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread. In verse 43 through 48, I just love because it speaks of, because they weren't busy trying to fill the thing or make the deal, they were busy just loving each other and fellowship and prayer. It says that the Lord added to their numbers daily those that were being saved. They didn't need a postcard. They didn't need some pencil-pushing, clipboard-carrying consultant goob to come in and tell them, if you do this, this, and this, then your church will explode. They just needed Jesus. Jesus said this to his disciples, and I'm saying it to you this morning. Could you not watch with me for one hour? Conduit, are you too busy that you can't watch with each other for one hour? That's just a question. I believe it's a legitimate one. And I believe if we want to, Eric and I were talking about this, we, we, we shot off a lot of rounds from our pistols this week, but... Eric's saying, it's like we got to do something bold. You know? Bold is this. You guys saying, hey, come to my house. Not waiting on me to make the list into the whiteboard, and we all, you know, now we got to be assigned, and it's forced friendships. And mm -mm. You don't want to grow old doing that. We're petrifying ourselves. But what can happen, though, is that we sit and wait. He didn't say, would you wait with me for one hour? He said, would you watch with me for one hour? Could you not? And Conduit, I know you can. You can watch with him for one hour, and you can watch with each other for the enemy in our lives of poverty and of divorce and sickness. If it becomes about the church fulfilling all of those, then we got to staff up and we got to get the building because then we're all. But if it's a group, like when Robert and Natalie just had their fourth baby, they've joined the four club. We didn't have to do the church-wide email to try to get meals for them because they're, they're, they're already taking care of each other. And gang, we don't mind doing that. But if you're in that environment where you're already in that community, you don't have to have the church-wide email because you've already got your tribe, your family, your church. And this is not an indictment against anybody here. I'm just trying to be the conductor to awaken the possibility in you. All the conductor does is wave the little stick. You guys got to play the music. If you feel like that's something that you want and you're desperate for, we can help to try to, hey, introduce you to this person or that. Or We do have groups already that are going, that are experiencing this already. Cortland is like the concierge of that. He can help you to introduce you if you need it. But you don't have to wait for that, not if you don't want to. Maybe it's your own home, but if you don't know anybody, don't feel like, oh, you're a loser because you don't know. You're everybody if that's you. You don't know this person or that. You want to take the risk. We'll, we'll be glad to introduce you to someone. What I am saying is I don't want it to be about us telling you, go do this, go do that. What I'm saying is the one thing, and we're landing on this one, the, what is the thing that Jesus promised to the church at Sardis? The one thing they were missing, the one 
promise. And you remember from chapter one, he pulls out from chapter one the very thing that that church would need, that part of Jesus that they would need. And what was it that he said there? The seven spirits of God, they needed the Holy Spirit. It spoke of Isaiah 11, the fullness of the Spirit of God. What we don't need is more classes, the Discipleship 101, 102, you get a certificate suitable for framing. What we need is the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus and we need each other. Could you not watch with each other for one hour? Fight the culture. Don't get distracted by, oh, we, we, this thing on TV and this is sin and then we gotta do this and that. The culture is that we're so doggone busy we don't have time to watch with each other for one hour. That is your enemy. Be awake, be on the watch. We're gonna celebrate now and I want you to know that the cake is awesome because it came from Costco. Don't rush out of here today. Introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. Risk it today, starting right now. I don't know where Cortland is, but if he was up here a minute ago, find Cortland. If, if you're saying, I wanna, I wanna have something like this in my home, I promise you Cortland's got eight people on his list that he knows that, that are looking for that very thing. If we can do something to help you meet each other, absolutely. Take your time today. We are gonna need help at the end to tear down, but don't rush out of here. Also, don't sneak out just because they get the cake and we aren't tearing down yet. If you could help to tear down, we really could use it. There's so much more to this. Our kids are leaving the church not because we're not cool, well, maybe, but because, because there's nothing, it's dead. If, if that's what I'm aiming for is to build the show, to build this awesome presentation, they can get that anywhere. We gotta lead with our strengths. Our strengths is not how good of a show we can put on, it's the power of the Holy Spirit transforming lives. Could you not watch with me for one hour? Boom. Phillips, would you stand up? You wanna, you, Enzers, right here. You guys want some Holy Spirit in the community? Brand new, go there. Anybody else in a group that actually has somebody that you're welcome, you need some people in your group, you're open? Yep. Oh, yeah. Sue up here, back here, Tony, out in the country, Rankins. These are groups already experiencing this. You want some of that? Go meet one of them and figure out where they're going to be and watch with them for one hour this week. God, would you forgive us for being so blasted busy, for allowing the culture to say what my schedule is and not allowing you to move in my heart and to give me the opportunity. Would you forgive us for that? I'm repenting as a father of my family, repenting, I'm changing my mind, I'm thinking about this differently today. Could you not watch for me with me on our Lord? Yeah, we're gonna watch with you this week and we're gonna watch for you. We're gonna watch for the enemy in our lives. We're gonna watch out for false teachers. And <laughs> And you said wherever two or three gathered in your name, that there you are in the midst of them. And we know that when we watch with each other, we are watching with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.